Now we're going to turn to Acts chapter 12. We're going to conclude. Uh, this is going to be a break from here on out. We're in the book of Acts, of course, chapter 12. We're dealing, actually, this is the beginning of a new division in the book of Acts. Remember the purpose statement for the book? You remember the, the main theme of the book is found in Acts 1.8? And what's that theme? You will be my in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So far, what have we covered? We've covered that a spirit has descended on to God's people, right? And they have become his witnesses where? And at Pentecost, right? And where did Pentecost happen? Jerusalem. And now we've also seen that the gospel's gone to Judea and Samaria. And we've started with the gospel call to the Gentiles. But really, in Acts chapter, in Acts chapter 12, beginning of Acts chapter 13, is where the mission's now going to be sent out. You're going to notice the Apostle Paul and Barnabas and, and other men are now going to be sent on what is listed as the first missionary journey. So really, the rest of the book, uh, we've covered already Jerusalem and Judea. The rest of the book of Acts deals uh, with the coming of the power of Christ to the remotest parts of the earth, to the ends of the earth in those three missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. So I think this is a good place for us to stop and then when we come back we can pick up and look at these, these awesome stories here. But before we go any further, just think about how amazing this is, right? Uh, in the Old Testament, by and large, the focus is on what group of people? The Jews. Israel, right? There you have your occasional Rahabs and your occasional Ruths that come in from non-Israelite parts, sure. But by and large, it's about a nation with its own customs, its own traditions, its nationalism, and it's under the blessing of God. But what happened? Now, in part, because of those nationalisms, those culture, the traditions, the bloodlines, they've become idols to Israel. So Israel has its place as a nation now taken away. And in the midst of it, in spite of it, it's going to bring forth a nation producing fruit of it, which is really many nations as Gentiles and Jews together. That's astounding. It's remarkable that you will find from the church now on people of all different backgrounds, all different nations, all different cultures who look very different from the Jews who are going to be on the same footing of Christ, in Christ, of those Jews who are trusting in Christ. It's really remarkable. Uh, it's amazing. And so, so before we come all of that, there's a foundation to it in the text before us in the calling and commissioning of Paul and Barnabas, which is the main theme. So I want to I spend time with some of the concepts in this foundation, this, this foundation to those missionary journeys. And that's given to us particularly in chapter 13, 1 through 4. And I want to do this in three parts tonight. First, I'm going to start with the intro and give you a little bit of background. And then we're going to deal with the calling of Paul and Barnabas, the, the commissioning, which is dealt with very briefly in the last part of verse 3 and the first part of verse 4. And then the last part, what do we do with this? How can we apply this? So contemporary application is what we've got here. Calling, commission, and contemporary application of this text, that's your outline. So if you had blanks, uh, we're going to go past them uh, well, so don't, don't freak out there. So the background actually begins in Acts chapter 12, verse 24. And we looked at this a little bit uh, last week, but let's look at this statement again. It says, But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. Christ is at work. He's using his word so that it grows, so that it's multiplied. Remember who was put to death last week by the sovereign decree of God? Who was it? Eaten by worms, you remember? 
Herod, that's right. Herod was put to death by the sovereign decree of God. The church, actually, in this point, is now unleashed from that period of persecution temporarily. And apparently, there is now an unprecedented period of growth in the life of the church. Isn't that wonderful? The church is growing. And then we read in verse 25, it says, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. Remember, just briefly, Paul and Barnabas went down south with aid and relief for a famine that occurred in Jerusalem. That happened in chapter 11. And this is in the context now of the word of God growing and multiplying. You guys know what it's like when a church grows, right? It's exciting. That's all you want to talk about when you talk about church things. You follow the people who've been converted. You see and and talk about the people who are coming back to church. You notice the changed lives. And so when you read of the word growing and multiplying, all that's going on. And that certainly would have inspired, it would have been encouragement to Barnabas and Saul when they returned from Jerusalem. What's amazing is there's a bit of a time jump here. This was probably... Anywhere from 12 to 14 years here from the moment that Paul was converted in Acts chapter 9. Keep that in mind. Paul was commissioned already. What did God tell Paul he was going to do? He's going to go where? To the Gentiles, right? He's going to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And now Gentiles are being converted in the new head of the church, the new place where the church moved up north in that town called Antioch. That's right. And Jerusalem is now cool with with Gentiles being into the fold. All of this stuff is happening. You know, have you ever seen the movie The Right Stuff? Uh, about the astronauts going to space. That's a, that's a pretty old movie, but, uh, but it's about the space race, or maybe you probably even have lived through it, and I didn't mean to call you old if you have. Uh, but you would know that in those moments when those, the space race was happening and America's trying to, to beat Russia, every time there was any sort of launch, it was unreal. In some schools, they would let you listen in on the countdown and everybody would go ballistic. Well, this is exactly what happened here. This was the launch of missions into the world, into the unknown world. And so Saul and Barnabas, they go back to Antioch and they have with them John Mark, who obviously the theme being, what do we do with the commission to go to the Gentiles? That brings us to Acts chapter 13 Uh, verses 1 and 2. Any questions so far about the background or anything else we covered? Okay. Verses 1 through 2, we're going to look at this whole theme of calling. Saul and Barnabas are called in chapter 13, 1 through 2. Notice this is in the context of the church life. Remember, the church is growing. The word of God is being multiplied. And look what the Bible says in verse 1. Now, there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, and Menion, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. It's not coincidental this is happening in the life of the context of the church. So you saw that list of prophets and teachers. We're going to go through that. But then verse 2 says, while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So they're fasting and and something happened. Let's break this down, okay? Let's start with Antioch. You remember a little bit about Antioch, right? One of the largest cities, the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Rome was wicked. What was Antioch? Also wicked. In fact, regarded even as more wicked. the, The line was that the sewage of Antioch had flowed into the Tiber, which was the river that goes through 
the city of Rome. It was not unlike a Las Vegas or or New York or or L.A. It was a city of entertainment, of licentiousness, of its own morals. It was a city corrupt, a city which you could get anything you want, good or evil, because it was near a port. Third largest city there, about a half a million people, Brother Justin said. This is where the Lord decides to start his church. I love that. This is a model of the Gentile congregation. I love that Antioch is the place where God decides to start his church. Not because of its wickedness, but I love that the Lord says, See, this is where I'm going to plant the flag of King Jesus. Right here in the midst of this place. Church, I believe the Lord can do the same thing right here in Callahan and even in Jacksonville. Because I can't find a place that tells me anywhere in the word of God that in the 21st century, Jesus has changed or he's less powerful than he was then. So in Antioch, there are the leaders they're given. I want to go through these leaders. They're mentioned by name here. The number one leader is not Saul, by the way, is it? Who's mentioned first? Barnabas. And this is not the first time we've heard about Barnabas. You remember what his nickname was? Son of encouragement, absolutely. The number one leader is Barnabas here. He's in Antioch, which is a wicked city. Barnabas is a Levite, which means what kind of background does he have? Priestly background. He lived in Cyprus. And in a real sense, Barnabas is the pattern of a man who was called to office apart from an immediate audible call given by Jesus. Saul was called immediately by the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus, as were the other 11 disciples during the life of Jesus, but not Barnabas. Barnabas appears on the scene at the church of Jerusalem. He comes to Christ, and remember all the way back uh, in the book of Acts, I believe it was Acts chapter 5, he gives everything that he has to the good of the church. He becomes an inherent part of of church life. And there's two main events where he shows himself to be a leader. Number one, you remember when Saul comes to Jerusalem? And he gives an account that he's been converted and everyone's so standoffish from him. Who's the one that says, let's hear him out? Barnabas. We need to get to know this Saul. He shows himself as a leader. Secondly, he is the one who when he's at Antioch and sees the church growing back in Acts chapter 11 verse 25, Barnabas is the one who heads up north to Tarsus where Saul is in his hometown. He finds him there. He brings them back to Antioch so that for a year they meet with the church and they teach the people. So, so Barnabas is really sort of the preeminent leader in this group. He doesn't get a lot of respect, but he is. Notice the second one mentioned. Here, not just Barnabas, but Simeon, who was also called Niger. Only thing we know about this guy is that he's a black man. Niger, he's, he's from Africa. He, he's called Niger, which means black. Keep that in mind. Lucius of Cyrene was the next. He's from the northern part of Africa. He had also come to Antioch as a missionary. And notice what's interesting here. You've got a Jew in Antioch. You've got a black man in Antioch. Lucius, anyone want to guess what that's from, what that sounds like? Not, I mean, sort of, yes. What type of name that is? What culture? It's a Roman name. It's a Roman name, which means this man has been brought up in all the Roman customs and Roman morals, and regardless of his bloodlines, he'd been given the name that fully identified with Rome and its culture. Look at the next guy. I love this one too. Manian. What do we know about Manian from the scriptures? 
It's right there in your text. He was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. All right, so which one is this, right? Okay, remember, it's not the one that was just eaten by worms. Not the first one, Herod the Great, who, remember, had the slaughter of all the children of Bethlehem. Not Herod Archelaus, who made Joseph and Mary somewhat timid about coming back into the land. It's the other Herod, the Tetrarch, who was responsible for John the Baptist's murder, right? And secondly, he was at another big event. Crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is that Herod. Think about this. That's the one that Manian, now in Antioch, had, had likely been brought up with. And it, it could be understanding the language here that he has some way as a, as a foster brother or even a cousin, not by bloodline, but, but by some sort of marriage tie. Which means something. If you were brought up with, with the Herod, the governor, what did that likely mean about your status and culture? Yeah. You were royalty. <laughs> like, you, you, you own stuff. You were brought up in, in, in a really, really nice house if you're connected with, with Herod. What an amazing crew of leaders in a church. Think about this. Do you see the sovereignty of grace here? Manian and Herod had rubbed shoulders when they were young. They'd been under the same influences as young men. The Lord let Herod the Tetrarch go his own way through his own desires as a wicked man. He'd be the one who'd had a cameo appearance at the trial of Christ and wouldn't stop it. He's responsible for the beheading of John the Baptist. But God in his sovereign grace takes Manian and makes him a disciple. It's amazing. We haven't even got to the last one mentioned yet. Saul. Saul is the one that come down from Tarsus and was with them. Think about this, multiracial, multi-class church in a very wicked area. And friends, that is what grace does. That is why when people say things like, you know, why don't we just go to a place that's a little bit easier? Why don't we just do simple missions that, that aren't really difficult? That's really a slap in the face of God's sovereign grace. God shows the world that this is his work that he does. So it's a church-centered thing under leadership. And then notice what the text says in verse 2. The Holy Spirit is at work here. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting. Ministering to the, is a word from which we get our word worship. The church is gathering here. It's, it's in communal life in which it's praising God. They're seeking God's face in prayer. They're at fellowship around the table with one another. This is the organic Christian life where you're not just coming to hear a preacher and then leave. That's, that's organic Christian life they're having here. These are people who are caught up with the things of the kingdom of God. They are caught up in the teaching. They are caught up in the work of Christ and his glory and his grace. They've probably been delivered from all kinds of wicked backgrounds. And as they minister... To the Lord in that life of worship, what else did they do? They fasted. Why? Just think about this, church family. What were they just told? They were told and reminded that the gospel is going to go where? To the whole world. To the Roman Empire of all places. The uttermost parts of the earth. You're a church in Antioch. You've got some skillful people, obviously, because they're singled out. You've got a man in your midst who says he's been told by the Lord, Jesus, that you, he's going to bring him into the world to be a minister to the Gentiles. 
And you know you've got a particular role in that. You'd fast too. <laughs> You'd have such a burden that you, you would want to devote every amount of your energy towards focusing in prayer. You're going to say, Lord, what do we do? You ever fast, by the way? You ever take concerted time to pray and ask for things? Or do you just fret and worry and say, no bother, that's impossible? Church, look at this. Look at this body. Look at where we were even a couple chapters ago in the book of Acts with persecution. Nothing is impossible with God. See, the reason why our thoughts about the actual power of the gospel are so small is not because we live in such a wicked culture. It's because we have a very low view of God. Because when you have a high view of God, a high view of his graces, his purposes in the world, there is not a billion Antiochs too powerful powerful for him to conquer. He is showing them, you think it's hard to go out to the world? Look what I've done in Antioch. But God, look at all these different castes of people. There are people in Africa and they're, they're ignorant. Look at Niger, Lucius, Simeon. But Lord, what about all these wicked kings? Look at Manian. But God, there are Jews that don't like us. Look at Barnabas. But God, there are Jews that want to persecute us. Look at Saul. See? So, so with the leaders, God stops the mouth of people thinking God can't do what so many people think God can't do. He shuts them up. And so they fast, and that's in the context of worship. And then the Holy Spirit said through one of them, separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I've called them. I want to break that down just a bit. Who's speaking here? If this is Christ by the Spirit who's speaking, remember Jesus says the Spirit will make the things of mine. He's going to take the things that are mine. He's going to declare them unto you. So this is Christ speaking in the body of people who are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And he says to them, set apart for me. Let me just say something here. and I don't, I don't want this to sound like bratty in any way, shape, or form because I am, I'm treated very well here at First Baptist Church of Grey Gables and I've been treated this way. But let me say it, okay? Ministers aren't first set apart for people. And I have to say that because the view today of many is that the minister is the hired servant of the congregation. And my dear church family, I love to be a servant to you, but I am not a servant of you. I say it respectfully and lovingly, and it hasn't happened here. But you don't get to tell a minister of the gospel what to do. Jesus does. Now, there are times where you can show a minister of the gospel what Jesus says. Yes, there are times for a Berean ministry of correction needed in the life of the pastor. Yes. But his words here are set apart for me. Because he's my servant. He's my steward. He'll do my bidding in my way where I send him in my time with all my purposes in view. He's a servant to my people and to see people drawn out to be my people. But he's first my servant. And I love this. He says, and it's very explicit in the language. He actually says it in the way where it says, set apart for me now. Now, now wait a minute. When was Saul set apart for the work of the ministry to the Gentiles? When did that happen? 
All the way back in Acts chapter 9, right? That's what happened. Turn there real quick. A couple pages over in my Bible. Acts chapter 9, verses 15 through 16. And let's just recap this, right? Paul's on the road to Damascus. Remember, where's he going? He's going to kill and persecute more Jews, or more, more Christians, right? For the Jews. And look what he says. That God stops him. Jesus stops him. Look what it says in verse 15. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name. He's talking to Ananias here. To bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Paul goes on in his gospel recount of this to affirm that same thing. That he was set apart for the ministry to the Gentiles. He's my chosen vessel. But think about this. How long did we say it had been since that had happened? At least a decade, about 14 years before he's commissioned to that service. And I love this. If there's anyone here that's wrestling with issues of gospel ministry, that does not mean that you have to go into the gospel ministry, if at all, right away. God will often bring a stirring or a desire early on, but there may be more life experiences needed before some men are called to serve. So what happens in the church life? Notice this, as this is spoken, right, the church doesn't say, hey, I've got a great idea. Hey, Saul, over there, man, that guy's a terrific teacher. He is really gifted. He and Barnabas, they make a great team. They could be CEOs of a Fortune 500 company. Let's make them ministers. The Lord says, I've already called them to do that. Now you, church, have to recognize them. And friends, this is important. In every ordination and commissioning, at their best, the church is only recognizing what Christ has already done. This is just the calling out. So now let's move on to the commissioning out. And Brother Justin doesn't have a, a clock up there, and I turned my phone off, so whatever, you're stuck. All right, this is the calling out. Now we got the commissioning in verses 3 and 4. Look at verse 3 of chapter 13. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. This is once again, it's a time of need. They're going to send me people to minister to the Gentiles. They know this is a serious business, so they fast, they pray, and something that usually accompanies ordination happens. What do they do? Laid hands on them, right? They laid hands on them. Look at Numbers chapter 27. Uh, if you've got, it's going to be on the screen, but... I'm going to turn there. Numbers chapter 27. There, it, where there is a laying of hands on in Scripture, this normally refers to ordination, which is why I think Acts 13 is actually Saul's ordination to ministry. Some people don't agree with that. But look at Numbers chapter 27, verses 15. Then Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, May the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation. Notice, remember, Israel was the church of the Old Testament age, right? So this would be a leader over the church. And then verse 17, who will go out and come in before them and who will lead them out and bring them in so that the congregation of the Lord will not be like sheep which have no shepherd. He gives that age-old example we all see of a shepherd, a model, a leader, even as elders are to lead the house of God. Verse 18, 
So the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit, and lay your hand on him, and have him stand before Eleazar, the priest, before all the congregation, and commission him in their sight. You shall put some of your authority on him in order that all the congregation of the sons of Israel may obey him. Listen, when there's an ordination, right, that conveys that while there is no change in the person ordained, there's a symbolic conveying of authority authority by the laying on of hands, which means that the congregation needs to be submissive to that one in that office. So while Joshua isn't changed internally at all, but even as a president is inaugurated to office and from that point assumes the authority of that office, so Joshua is inaugurated to the office and assumed that authority. Let's clean this up in verse 21. Moreover, he, stout, he shall stand before Eleazar the priest, and who shall inquire for him by the judgment of Urim before the Lord. At his command they shall go out, and at his command they shall come in, both he and the sons of Israel with him, even all the congregation. Moses did just as the Lord commanded him, and he took Joshua and set him before Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation. Then he laid his hands on him and commissioned him just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Remember this. When you see the laying on of hands at any point, just as you did with the deacons in Acts chapter 6, verse 16, as we're going to see in the elders, whenever we get to Acts chapter 14, that's always ordination. Now, it's strange to me that, that people say, yeah, but this wasn't Paul's ordination. Paul was, was set apart by God. The Lord called him as an apostle. He had probably already been presenting the gospel in Arabia. He'd been teaching for a year. He brought aid down to Jerusalem. It couldn't be an ordination. I beg to differ with that. I, I really do think it is. And here's why. Ordination is a statement before the church that a man has been recognized with gifts has demonstrated that those gifts are serviceable in the church and that he has the equipment as well as the desire for a work to which he's called. That's what ordination is. And so with all those things in place here, a church like the church of Antioch, believing that Christ has formed that, it shows that through its leaders in an ordination service. And I believe that's exactly what we have. Look at verse 3. Thank you, Justin, putting that clock up there. Uh, verse, look at verse 3. They sent them away. All the church says thank you to Justin for putting that uh, clock up there. Right, okay. Uh, look at, I love this. Verse 3 says, they sent them away. Saul and Barnabas had been part of the ligaments and the muscle of that church for some time. We just gloss over that idea. They sent them away. You ever sent anybody into... The mission field? You ever sent anybody into service, into to Christian life? I, I think they ministered there. They poured their hearts out to the souls of the people as ministers are supposed to do in Antioch. They represented them to Jerusalem. They have been through thick and thin together as a church. This is not some formal process by which they left. I guarantee you this was agony and grief as there is when anyone leaves a church, let alone a minister. But Saul and Barnabas, actually the Greek is, is really sweet there. They're released. It affirms that. Let's look at this now in, in verse 4. The first part of verse 4, I want, to, I want us to just look at this last part of the commission. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit... Well, how could it have been by the Holy Spirit? 
Let's think about this. Church, I want you to put your thinking caps on, okay? Because we have two errors in our culture when it comes to ordination. The first error is one of formalism. It's a formalistic error. Here's what I mean by this. Man has a degree. Man is in a church. The church needs ministers. Churches go then through the routine of doing whatever is necessary to go through that ordination. He's put there, plopped before the people, and and sometimes that's perfectly fine, but oftentimes there is no Holy Spirit involved at all. It's just plain formalism. Maybe his dad was a pastor, who knows? So we ordain him. That's formalism. But the other side of this is more mysticism. It's the other error we have here. Not only formalism, but mysticism. That's this. Man's got the call. Man's got the desire. Man desperately wants to be ordained. He wants to be a minister. The Holy Spirit has told him that. The Holy Spirit has convinced him of that. The Holy Spirit has showed him that. And he expects the church to ratify that. That's mysticism. Friends, you remember what the church is? The church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. See, see, the Spirit's at work in you as you listen to someone preach. As you say, I am edified by that or I'm not edified by that. The Holy Spirit is also at work in the one who preaches, demonstrating those gifts and teaching. The Holy Spirit is at work in you when you say, my life is different because of that person who's poured their heart and soul into me. Or the Holy Spirit Spirit is at work in you where you say, as much as I love that brother and I feel like he's gifted in other areas, I'm just not edified by his ministry. The Holy Spirit is at work in forming men who are preeminent in godliness. The Holy Spirit is at work in the church in perceiving and understanding that. See, friends, it's, it's when those things mesh and, and gracing and, and gifting of men wed with their desire meshes while you see their gifts in action. When, when you see those graces, when you're benefiting from those gifts and having part in that desire, that's when a call comes. It's at that point we say, that's the Spirit doing that. So it is the Spirit himself through the agency of the church has sent them out. And that brings us, as we've already gone through, the call and commission to the contemporary application or the temporary equivalent of this. Any questions on call or commission? Comments so far? Just throw your hand up if you got one. I'll find you. Here's where I want to be careful here. Contemporary application, because I, I don't know whether or not the Lord's going to call out anybody here in our church to labor and ministry. But here's, here's what I do know, friends. I know our fields are ready for the harvest. If Antioch wasn't excluded, then Callahan sure isn't. <laughs> Could you imagine, by the way, if the first century church thought the same way we think today as a 21st century church? They would think there are two places the gospel just won't work in. One would be Rome, which Paul's going to go. The other would be Antioch. Those are the places where the gospel went. So we should begin to think in a small town like Callahan, where there are still many people who don't know Christ, that these fields are ready for the harvest. So we pray that the Lord would thrust forward laborers into the harvest. 
But okay, but we don't have prophets who are going to say, set apart Mr. So-and-so to the work I've called them in the city. But friends, we do have a church. It's a reasonably healthy, functioning church in which, by the way, the providence of God has had a history of seeing the Holy Spirit bring a number of men into the gospel ministry. Men and women, actually. Over the years, you've seen the Jeff Walkers, the Matt Altmans, the Brian Stiles, the Gulp Adam Pages, and so on and so on, and and have cultivated a, a certain amount of discernment about the kind of men that ought to be in ministry. We have seen, we've been fortunate to see in virtually all of these cases how God has blessed your input as the church into men who are laboring in the field today. That's not a coincidence. It's not pride, it's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's what God has done even as he was doing that kind of work in Antioch. The Spirit is at work at Antioch and he is there. Now what do we say about that today? How do we know if we've got men who are called to ministry in our church today? Well, Friends, they're going to show not, not even so much by saying, I want to be ordained. I want to be in ministry. Not even so much. They're going to show by what they do in their service. By having a bent toward bringing Christ to others. By having a, a passion, a concern, a burden to see the Lord Jesus brought continually to his own people and to those who are not his people. He's just seen a desire for missions. A desire to serve the Lord. When that's a genuine God-sent desire, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. So the first thing we'll see is that there's a desire. Is there a desire? But that isn't all. It's also, is a man graced? The Bible says an elder therefore must be blameless, a husband of one wife. Is he apt to teach? Is he hospitable? Is he one who's not quick-tempered? Do you see those gifts, those graces, and those men who desire that office? Yes or no? And we're not really good judges of this individually. Do you see men who show growing skill in communicating truth to you? Do they represent Christ to you? Do you see the graces and gifts? Do they have the desire wed with the graces, but... Even that's not enough. Do they have the gifts? Do they have the gifts mentally? Which means, can they open the word of God? Do they show an interest in studying the scriptures so they can open the word of God? Do they go off on tangents with the word of God? Or do they see the Bible and its beautiful unity and how Christ is shown down to the most minute parts? Do they know how to apply the word of God? Are they developing an increasing facility in doing that, yes or no? But that's not enough. Do they have gifts of vocal communication? Or or are they able at least one-to-one to speak to you so that you can say, the Holy Spirit used that brother to help me understand the scriptures? Or when they preach, was I edified by that man? You know, you know when God has it on a brother. You've seen it. You've witnessed it. They verbal communicate, but even that's not enough. Not just gifts of understanding, mental gifts, not just gifts of utterance to speak. Can the man lead? It's interesting that Barnabas was there, right? He's the leader. Barnabas was there. He's the one who showed by his giving that he's an example to others. Are they leaders? Do you see this cluster of things in a man in the church? 
even if he's one who has not said, I desire the office, maybe you ought to go to that brother and you say, you know, I think you ought to consider the ministry. Really? Yes. Because quite frankly, if we want laborers in Callahan and Jacksonville, ultimately the best place to get them is from Callahan and Jacksonville. And folks, that, that all goes in into this meshing of the gears of something that's called a call to ministry. The Holy Spirit at work bringing desire, bringing graces, bringing gifts in those areas. The Holy Spirit at work in a congregation so that they benefit from all of those things. Then under competent leadership in a church like the nucleus of a cell, the process is gone through of check and balances by which in a broader court of counsel, men can say, yeah, you're right. God has set this one apart. There are those graces in that, brother. Yeah, you're right. They do have those skills and languages and theology and church history and hermeneutics. And so we can see as he goes up in the pulpit and preaches the word, it's to the edification of the people. We've seen it. We've given testimonials in it. And then a congregation at some point can say, we want to call him. We want him to be our pastor and minister to us. That's the Holy Spirit at work. And it's possible they may be sent out into another place. But friends, church, that's the way it ought to be. The church calls ministers of the gospel. And listen, this is the church's business, by the way. Fellowship of Christian Athletes doesn't call ministers of the gospel. BFS, or BF, yeah, BFS, parachurch church groups, they don't call ministers of the gospel. The church calls ministers. Seminaries don't make ministers either, by the way. Churches recognize gifts that are formed in many different ways in men. So I'm just going to ask you, as I, I wrap, we wrap up, Everybody has a part in this. Men, I ask you, is there, is there someone here who has a desire to serve Christ? Maybe you've got a hard time getting out of your mind the glory of the gospel of grace and the wonder of Jesus. Now listen, obviously that ought to be true of every Christian, right? But there are some men that that, that passion for them is like an appetite. Do you see, as you read in the scriptures, those developing graces in your own life, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, so that they seem to be growing the fruit you never possibly thought imagined? When you judge yourself soberly, do you, men? Do you have not just an interest in the scriptures, but a fascination with studying them and wanting to impart them to others, wed with a skill to do it? A leadership that makes you get off your rear end and do something, question is, could it be that God's called you to ministry? And quite frankly, I can think of no other congregation I'd rather see men called from. That's what happened in this church in Antioch. And look what God did. You believe he can do it here? He already has. we've, We've got a gift in seeing how many people have been called to gospel ministry here. We should, we should be able to see this. Do you believe he's doing it here? Friends, this is just another aspect of King Jesus who is very much alive and is very much at work building his church. Amen?